is not it is to not allow ourselves to become like the world. At times, the Bible is extremely explicit, telling us to avoid what we would call worldliness. That means embracing anti-Christian, anti-God values, values that are diametrically opposed to God's values. For example, the Apostle Paul, or uh, the Apostle John instructs us in 1 John. Paul didn't write John, by the way. Um, <laughs> John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, this world is not our home. This is another great theme that can be found throughout all of Scripture. And yet, it's so easy for us to just kind of get comfortable and and to settle in here and just, you know, take things as as they are. And what inevitably happens is when a person starts to get comfortable with the world and, and start loving the world and the things in the world is that they start living for this world, Instead of living in light of eternity, they're, they're living in light of the present moment, and that's it. We are just passing through this world, and every single one of us will lose every worldly possession someday. This theme of avoiding worldliness is very closely connected to the primary theme of the Bible, which again is loving and trusting God, because it's impossible to love and to trust God, and also at the same time, love the world. You can't do both. It's one or the other. The person who loves the world does not and cannot love God. That's what John was saying here, to sum it up in a nutshell. But we have to recognize at the same time that this passage that John wrote here, not Paul, John, that John wrote was actually one of the last things written in Scripture. And there are a couple thousand years of events that took place before that was even written. So what about those people? Did they, did they know to avoid worldliness, the people in the Old Testament? Did they know that they were supposed to uh, avoid loving the world? Of course they did. I mean, I would say that's the entire implication of the book of Leviticus. But just in case the people were too thick-headed to get it, God was really explicit with them at times. He told them this in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 3 to 5. This was going to be our, our call to worship today. He said, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, it's really obvious to all of us that God was not speaking directly to you and me here. He was speaking directly to the Israelites. You and I don't come from Egypt. Uh, you and I don't live in the land of Canaan. So what is this, how does this apply to our lives? What does this mean uh, for us? After all, all Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, right? So how does this apply to us? It tells us that we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different from the world. We're supposed to have a completely different set of values. 
See, when you have a completely different value system, that will show in the fruit that you bear in your life. That is, the actions that you do in your life. See, the Canaanites had their own gods, and they had their own statutes, their own laws. And Israel was instructed, do not be like them. Don't worship their gods. Don't walk in their ways or in their statutes. Don't be like them. Be different. And if there's one thing that we've seen in our study of the book of Judges, it's that Israel was continually disobedient to this. They blended right in with their culture. They haven't been different. They've been tolerant. They've been accommodating. They've imported all these pagan philosophies into their own worldview. And you'd think that this was a story about our own culture, wouldn't you? In a sense, I guess maybe it is. It is about us. All of it is, is giving us direction. All of, us, all of it is teaching us something about becoming more like Christ. But if there's one story that demonstrates how disastrous it is to import cultural ideas about God into our theology, it's the story that we're going to cover today. Israel had worshipped the gods of the land. They had worshipped the gods of the nations that they were surrounded by. And they had thereby turned their hearts away from God. Remember, you can't love the world and God. So when you love the world, you're turning your heart away from God. And that's what they had done. And so finally, after being oppressed by the people whose gods they were worshiping for 18 years, they finally called out to God. We saw that God was initially unwilling to help them because the desire of their hearts was not to serve God. The desire of their hearts was to have God serve them. And this is how the gods of the land and of the foreign nations worked. They could be manipulated pretty easily, kind of like, if, if I do this, then this God will do that for me. So keep that in mind, because we're going to see that Jephthah, the man whom God raised up to free them from oppression, again, you know, raised up another one, once they finally actually repented, uh, he had imported this pagan uh, belief, this pagan philosophy into his own understanding about the one true living God of Israel. See, Jephthah knew and he believed in God. He had a great faith in God, in fact. He's found in the book of Hebrews in the Faithful Hall of Fame. He desired to be faithful to God. Although, as we're going to see today, he knew very, very little about God. I would say that he suffered from a very, very dangerous condition called theological ignorance. And it's important that we study stories like this one. As difficult as it is, as tragic as it is, because it shows us the danger of theological ignorance. And one of the things that we'll see today is that our country is becoming theologically ignorant at unprecedented rates as well. Someone, somebody, somewhere needs to sound the alarm because theological ignorance has consequences and it never ends well. So Jephthah had tried to negotiate toward a peaceful resolution with the king of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were camped out in Gilead, preparing for a military attack against them. But when negotiations failed, what was, what was anybody supposed to do? The king wasn't interested in peace. He was interested in power. Maybe that was his God. I'm sure it was. 
So right on the heels of learning that the king of the Ammonites didn't care to hear what Jephthah had to say, we read this as we continue in our study of Judges, uh, verses 29 to 31. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's what you would do for a pagan god, by the way. That's how the Canaanite gods were worshipped. So the Spirit of the Lord suddenly comes upon Jephthah. And this is a phrase that we've seen a few times. We, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel uh, right before Othniel was victorious in war against the enemies of God's people. We read that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon uh, right before he led Israel into victory. The Spirit of the Lord... Coming upon Jephthah is the thing that seals the deal. It's what makes the outcome certain. It is impossible. It is impossible for Jephthah to fail because the Spirit of the Lord is with him and the Spirit of the Lord will not fail. The Holy Spirit also seals us, by the way, guaranteeing our salvation. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul, not John, where Paul writes, In him, that is in Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And the Spirit of the Lord is Jephthah's guarantee that God will be true to his promise, that God will give him victory. And yet, Jephthah immediately reveals that he knows, he understands very, very little about God. His immediate response upon receiving the Spirit of the Lord is to try to barter with God. He tries to strike a deal with God when the outcome is already certain. He tells God, if you will give me victory, I'll give you the first thing that comes out of my house as a burnt offering. You do your part, I'll do my part. We got a deal. We're working together here. In other words, Jephthah is attempting to manipulate God the same way that the pagan culture around him would attempt to manipulate their gods. If I do this, God will do that. If I make this vow, God will give me victory. And so in Jephthah's mind, he has to bribe God. He has to pay God off if God is going to be on his side. Where did he get that idea? Not from the pages of Scripture, Definitely not from the pages of Scripture. He doesn't understand that when God deals with us, it is all by grace. It is all by grace. It is impossible for God to lie. When he says he's going to give you victory, he's going to give you victory. Jephthah doesn't understand that because the culture doesn't understand that. And he's imported the culture's ideas about God into his ideas about God. 
But the truth is we have nothing to offer God. We can't deal with God. We can't negotiate with God because we have nothing to offer God. He doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. He is an all-powerful, sovereign God. He's sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us. But Jephthah doesn't understand that. Jephthah doesn't realize that. He thinks, I've got something big to offer God, something important to offer God, so I'm going I'm to barter with him. I'm going to try to strike a deal with God. Utter and tragic theological ignorance. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand what Jephthah is trying to do here. He didn't mean to do wrong. He didn't have poor intentions. He was trying to demonstrate before God and and probably demonstrate before the people that he was leading that he was so devoted to what God had called him to do and equipped him to do, there wasn't anything that he wouldn't give up to accomplish God's purposes in his life. But instead of revealing a deeper devotion, he demonstrates a shallow faith in God's enabling power. He demonstrates a shallow understanding of God's character He has what we've called a syncretized faith, kind of like a buffet. You take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you bring it all together. It's a faith that includes some correct knowledge of God, some biblical knowledge of God, but it also stands upon the flimsy foundation of worldly, pagan ideas about God. Because that's how their gods work. That's how the the culture's gods work. God's promise of victory wasn't a sure thing in Jephthah's mind unless he was willing to up the ante, unless he was willing to to sweeten the pot for God, so to speak. Friends, we have nothing to offer God except praise. We have nothing to offer God but our hearts. There, There is no deal that you and I can make. There is no sacrifice that we can offer to him to make his promises more sure than they already are. God cannot be manipulated. Would you want to stand on the, on, on the faith of a religion whose God can be manipulated? Whose God can change? That's what the implication there is. God can't be manipulated. God doesn't barter. If he makes a promise, it's as good as done. If we were to take just the, the book of Job... And the first uh, six books of the Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua, these were all books that, that Jephthah would have had access to. Job was actually the first book chronologically written. But if we were to take these seven books, we would know this much about God. That God is sovereign. That God is good. That God cannot be manipulated. But Jephthah doesn't know this about God. And the results are going to be tragic. You see, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon somebody, it's kind of like a spoiler. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I go to extraordinary lengths sometimes to avoid learning the endings or the happenings of shows and movies that I have not watched yet. You can listen, Noel. I see you looking down. Noel played this great prank on me last week. Because I I hate it when my friends slip up and tell me, you know, what's going to happen in a show. And so... She knew that I hadn't yet watched this show that, that she and Jamie watch and that Christina and I watch. And uh, so she texted me, what do you think about so-and-so dying in tonight's episode? I hadn't watched it yet. I was like, what? She dies? You, you know, Go away. I, I don't want to know what happened. You just spoiled it for me. 
But it was a fake spoiler. The joke was on me. The character didn't die in the episode. She got me really, really good. But, but man, I, 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 seriously, I hate spoilers. I, I, just, I, I typically just want to find out for myself what's going to happen. But when God makes a promise, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone, it's like a spoiler. You know the outcome before you even get to it. Jephthah doesn't understand that. He doesn't trust that the outcome is certain. So he makes this vow to God to offer the first thing that comes out of his house as a burnt offering. And it turns out to be a tragic vow. Just like Israel's understanding of God had diminished significantly through the book of Judges, the understanding of God held by most Americans today, even those who identify themselves as evangelicals, has also greatly diminished. Theological ignorance is spreading like a bad virus in our country, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at that. But first, let's see how Jephthah's vow turns out. We continue in verses 32 to 34. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. That's all it has to say about the battle. Just boom, it's over. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. You can see how this plays out. As Jephthah is making his way back home, Man, this is a moment of victory. He's just, he's just conquered the Ammonites by God's power. It's a moment where he feels like he's just on top of the world. It's probably a moment where he felt like, man, I, I have God's favor. I've never felt so sure that I have God's favor in my life. It's a moment of great rejoicing for him as he's returning home from this victory. And as he comes near to his house, it becomes apparent that his daughter, who's his only child, she's been waiting in great anticipation for her daddy to return home from war. Her daddy survived the battlefield, and he's finally coming home. And as he comes within a hundred yards or so, she finally sees him in the distance, and so she goes running out to greet him. And she's laughing And she's singing for him. And she's dancing for him. And she finally gets close enough to throw her arms around him to welcome him home. And as she does, she sees that Jephthah has tears streaming down the sides of his face. And she backs up for a second just to see that those aren't tears of joy. But they are tears of great regret and great mourning. Jephthah's moment of victory is over It's destroyed by a great and deep sorrow. And so as he falls to his knees and and tears his clothes, he explains to her why he's so distraught. And I want you to see exactly what he says here. Because what we see here is a guy who, who really is broken as a leader. He says, you have brought me very low, for I've opened my mouth 
to the Lord, and I can't take back my vow. You have caused me this distress. You have brought me this low. He's at least half blaming her, isn't he? The implication is exactly what you think it is. He's vowed that the first thing that would come out of his house, he would sacrifice as a burnt offering. And that makes me wonder, what did he think was going to be the first thing out of his house? What what was he expecting to come out of his house first? Now, as Americans who have pets, we might think, uh, you know, he is probably expecting a a dog to come running out or, uh, you know, a horse or a donkey or a goat or, you know, something like that. Maybe he's expecting an animal, but that honestly seems unlikely because this isn't America that we're talking about here. This is an ancient culture. People didn't have animals living inside of their homes back in that age. And further, if an animal had been what his heart had intended, he should have realized that the vow uh, you know, was, was still intact after she comes out. He's still waiting for an animal to come out. You know, He could have sat there waiting with his daughter for their dog or whatever, to come out of the house. So the question really is, whom was Jephthah expecting to come out of the house? A family member who ran him out of Gilead as a young boy, maybe? A servant, maybe? How about a family member who ran him out of Gilead who had become his servant? It's almost certain he was expecting a person. See, in Jephthah's mind, this is a vow that he'd better keep. He made a vow to God, and if he doesn't keep it, boy, he's in for some trouble. And his daughter's response is actually noble. It's pretty incredible. Verses 35 to 40. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her, according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So her response, so much grace. It's basically, okay, Dad, do what you have to do. God upheld his half of the deal, Now you have to uphold your half of the deal as well. But let me go and mourn the fact that I'm not going to do what I've been told since I was a baby I was going to do. I was going to be a mother. I was going to give you grandchildren. Let me go and mourn that. Where does she get this understanding of God that she has to... She has to go along with it. She has to go along with with this vow. She got this understanding of God from her parents. Obviously, that is usually how it works. 
It's the same understanding of God that Jephthah has. It's the cultural view of God. And what we see in their culture is the same thing that we see in our own culture, a theological ignorance which has no understanding of God's character, no understanding of God's desires. And the result of this level of ignorance is one of the most horrific stories in the entire Bible. The godliest man in the land thinking that it's okay to sacrifice his daughter to appease God. One could possibly at least try to make the argument that there wasn't a more innocent person who was murdered in all of Scripture except Jesus himself. There are a few There are a few people who will try to make the argument that the reason his daughter goes off to lament is not that she will be put to death, but that she'll be a virgin for the rest of her life as she serves in the temple, because that's all that the vow that Jephthah made to God entailed. Uh, In fact, uh, any of you guys heard of J. Vernon McGee? Somebody told me a couple weeks ago that was his view of this passage, that, that's, uh, that no, he didn't sacrifice her, but that he committed her to a life of uh, being a perpetual virgin in service in the temple. But I've got to admit, I, I just gotta, I've tried to make sense of that interpretation, and not only does it make no sense, but it denies one of the primary rules for inter- interpreting Scripture to interpret it to mean exactly what it says, unless what it says doesn't make any sense. Jephthah had obviously, very obviously, intended to perform a human sacrifice if God gave him victory on the battlefield. Because that's what the Canaanites did. That's what their culture did to worship their gods, to bribe their gods. And the tragedy here. So this is a sacrifice that Jephthah didn't have to make, and and he shouldn't have made it. He should have known that this sacrifice, that human sacrifice, is strictly, strictly forbidden by God. How would he have known that? By reading God's Word. Even the seven books of the Bible that he would have had access to, if he just would have read those, he would have known. Human sacrifice is not accepted, does not please God. God's word is explicit. We read this in Deuteronomy. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Talking about the people of the land. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So here it is. It's explicit. It's it's in forthright, black and white language. God is not pleased or appeased by a parent offering their child as a sacrifice. This does not make God happy with him. This turns that person into an abomination in God's eyes. He forbids any human sacrifice. This is what the pagan did, uh, pagans did, and it was an abomination to God. And, I, and, and it would be so easy, 
it would be so easy to to explain this away and just say, well, you know, we we can't really blame Jephthah for being ignorant. I mean, consider, you know, considering his upbringing, you know, he was kicked out of his house. He was in a pagan culture, you know, all these things, you know, we, we can just blame his upbringing. Wouldn't it be easy if we could just blame all of our sins on our environment? Yeah, but the fact is, it's really... It's really not that simple. After all, we have churches in every town in this country. And there are cities where you can practically find a church on every corner. And we have access to Bibles that is historically unprecedented. We have thousands and thousands of sermons being put online every week in this country. And internet access is growing. Almost everybody has access to the internet somewhere. And yet, our very own country is experiencing an unprecedented and increasing ignorance of who God is. This last week, Ligonier Ministries, that's R.C. Sproul's ministry, they released the results of a poll that was conducted, and I want to share some of these frightening results with you. People who participated in this survey were asked whether they agreed strongly, agreed somewhat, uh, disagreed strongly or disagreed somewhat, or, or were not sure. And so for the statement, there will be people in heaven who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Only 30% of those polled answered that they disagreed strongly. 33% of people who identified themselves as evangelicals or other Christian uh, who attend church once or more times per month strongly agreed. 33% agreed that there will be people in heaven who have never heard, in Je- uh, heard of Jesus. That's a lot. For the statement, a person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds with grace. 64% of the people in our country agree. Apparently, they haven't read Romans chapter 3, where God says this about humanity. He says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. There's one seeker. His name is Jesus. No one seeks for God. If God did not seek us first, if God did not draw us to his son, not a single one of us would have even the most remote interest in God. Scripture is clear. God must, in his grace, take the initiative in seeking us. He must take the initiative in salvation. For the statement, people do not have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. Only 16% agreed strongly or somewhat. 16%. According to the Hartford Institute of Religious Research, more than 40% of Americans say they go to church weekly. The fact that only 16% have a correct understanding of this doctrine is perhaps the most troubling statistic that was revealed in this study, but the next one isn't much better. For the statement, an individual must contribute to his or her own effort for personal salvation. An astounding 71% either agreed strongly or agreed somewhat that we must contribute our own effort for salvation. This is the same mistake that Jephthah made. He didn't understand that with God, our salvation is entirely God's grace. Because we have nothing to bring to God. We have nothing to offer Him. The only effort that God will accept 
for personal salvation is the effort of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross on Calvary in order to redeem for himself a people. And his work, his effort, was entirely sufficient. To believe that that we have to offer something is to imply that Christ's work, the atonement of Christ, was not sufficient. But friends, there is nothing that we can add to our salvation. The vast majority of Americans do not believe that the atonement of Christ was sufficient for the redemption of the saints. Theological ignorance. For the statement, there are many ways to get to heaven, 44% agreed strongly or somewhat. 14% were unsure. Add them together, you got 58% who either agree or they're not sure. See, nobody, nobody in America has an excuse for not knowing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Because he said that he is the way. But fewer than 50% of the people in our country either know or believe what Jesus said. For the statement, everyone sins at least a little, but most people are by nature good. Yeah, 65% of people either strongly or somewhat agreed. Thank you, Oprah Winfrey. Thank you, Hollywood. Thank you, secular humanism. The Bible clearly teaches none is good. None. Caleb had a great idea, by the way, to name his son none. Just saying. None is good. Oh, okay, yeah, his son. The problem is that there's a shrinking minority of biblically literate people in our country. Not a single person on the face of the earth is good by nature. Not even one. As Jesus said, only God is good. Only God. Now, Jesus, that that isn't exactly feel-good theology. But it's true. But it's true. For the statement, even the smallest sin deserves damnation. 18% agreed strongly or somewhat. 18%. 40% of Americans agree either strongly or somewhat with the statement, God loves me because of the good that I do or have done. Let's be very clear about something. God does not love you because of anything that you have done. God loves you because, first of all, he is love, and second of all, he did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to bear his own wrath against sin on your behalf, on the behalf of everyone who puts their trust for salvation in Jesus. His love is all grace. It's all grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to deserve it. It's an outflowing of his mercy. It is never, ever Ever something that we have earned. It's never something that we deserve. It is all grace. It's never something that He owes to us because of anything about us, anything that we've done or not done. One more. 63% of Americans agree, either strongly or somewhat, that God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. 63% agree with that. And we say, wow, 63%, that, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's a positive, right? Okay, but if you had a room of 100 people, 
And almost 40 of them thought that God was fallible, that God makes mistakes, that God sins maybe. That's a lot of people who have absolutely no idea who God is. The polls could not be more clear. You and I live in a culture of increasing ignorance of things related to God and theology. But there's a very important lesson in the midst of Jephthah's story and how ignorant of God he was. And that is that God will forgive ignorance. But he does not forgive perpetual unbelief. If you stand before him in unbroken disbelief someday, I hate to think of what the outcome will be. Jephthah was ignorant, yeah. But Jephthah is also mentioned in the book of Hebrews as a hero of the faith. Because despite his ignorance, he had a great faith in God. And faith is what pleases God. The book of Hebrews even tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can have all the knowledge in the world about God and theology according to the Bible. You can, there are atheists who know the Bible backwards and forwards. There are atheists who know the, the Bible better than most theologians. But if you don't have saving faith, it's all for nothing. It doesn't mean anything to God. You cannot please God if you do not have faith. Hayden Robinson, he's one of the greatest preachers of our time. He's written a lot of books uh, that have been very influential on preaching in our country. Uh, He says this, he says, quote, When I first came to trust Jesus Christ, I had gone to church, but I didn't know very much. All I knew was that I was a sinner. I didn't have a ghost of a chance if God was holy and I was supposed to stand before him. I also knew that somehow Jesus, by dying for me, could save me from my sins. That's all I really knew. That's what I trusted. And that's what gave me a relationship with God. End quote. Friends, our our deeds, our actions, our knowledge even, will never bring us into fellowship with God. That's accomplished by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Trust Him. And when we fully trust Him, when we learn to trust Him, what we find is that we're more and more and more longing to be obedient to Him. And our faith grows because our desire to live a life that's pleasing to Him is growing. There's a very, very real danger that Christians in our country are more deeply moved and more deeply affected by the culture than they are by God's word. And we are no exception. Just like Jephthah had imported his culture's understanding of God into his own theology, into his own philosophy, into his own belief system, there are Christians who lack theological understanding because they're so ingrained and so entrenched in the culture that they've started to believe the culture and what the culture teaches and believes about God more than they believe what the Bible teaches about God. They don't know or they aren't sure of the vast differences between the gods of the culture and the God of the Bible. 
And so Jephthah forces us to look in the mirror. He forces us to look at ourselves and ask, in what ways do I maybe not understand God? In what ways could I maybe understand God a little better? Because every one of us, there's, there's some place where we can learn more about God. And there's only one way to answer that question. And that is to become a student of the scriptures. Learn what the scriptures reveal about us. The scriptures reveal that we are not good, but that we are sinners, that we are broken, and we stand before a holy God who has a zero-tolerance policy against sin. Learn what the scriptures reveal about us, about God, about salvation, and see how these teachings line up with your own views. And keep changing. Keep letting the word of God change you. There are so many churches in our country where you'll never hear about sin, where you'll never hear about God's wrath. There are far too many churches where all you get is what I call cotton candy preaching. You want to get a whole bunch of kids to follow you at the park, to get a whole bunch of kids to you know, gather around you at the park, offer free cotton candy. Get out there with a cotton candy cart, and you will attract the kids. I guarantee it. And so what, when I call uh, cotton candy preaching, is stuff that just doesn't deal with the things that we should know about scriptures where the focus is maybe becoming a better you rather than on becoming more like Jesus. And friends, it has to stop. It has to stop. Somebody has to sound the alarm because truth be told, our children really are at stake. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. Absolutely. The lesson of this story is, thankfully, since I'm a father myself, not to become like Jephthah in every way. All of Scripture, this passage included, is pointing at Jesus. All of it. Every book, every chapter, every passage, every verse, every word. It all points to our need for Jesus because it reveals our need to live in God's grace, to stand on God's grace. And it teaches us about the sufficiency of his grace. That was something that Jephthah didn't understand. He thought he needed to add something to it. The Bible teaches us all about God. It teaches us to know what does and what doesn't please God. That's something that you and I can't know by natural revelation. That is, by by looking out the window, I I would say that you have every reason to, to arrive at the conclusion that there is a God. Because something exists rather than nothing. What's more likely, for something to come out of nothing or for nothing to come out of nothing? It's more probable that nothing would come out of nothing, but something's here, so there must be a God. There you go. You can look out the window and through natural revelation understand that God exists, but you can't through natural revelation understand what pleases God or what doesn't please God. And if you import the culture's ideas of what pleases God into your own theology... Friend, you are walking on very, very thin ice. That's something that can only be learned and known by studying his word, by studying the Bible. So let the Bible challenge you. Let it test you. Let it correct you. And and sometimes you may even find that it will outright rebuke you. That's okay. Let it. Because God changes us through his unchanging word. The lesson here is to love God 
enough to desire to know more and more of God in order that we may live lives that are pleasing to him. God does not desire for us to be like the world. We are supposed to be different. Love God, know God, and be different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We know that without it, Lord, none of us could stand before you. Not a single one of us is good on our own. Not a single one of us has anything to offer you except our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that as we reflect on this passage and the tragic nature of it, Lord, that we would turn our hearts to you. And in turning our hearts to you, we would increase in our desire to know you and therefore increase in our study of your word. Teach us to be a people, Lord, who reflect your grace, who understand your grace, and who live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.